Hi, it's Chris. Do you live in the New York area? If so, I have a special live podcast event to invite you to, and you're not going to want to miss it. Rick Wilson, yes, the Rick Wilson, sharp-witted, wise-cracking Republican political strategist, ad maker, analyst, columnist, and crazy good tweeter, will join me for a live conversation about the 2020 election, impeachment, and his new book, Running Against the Devil, a plot to save America from Trump and Democrats from themselves. You can get all the details at chrisreback.com slash rickwilson. Here are the headlines. Wednesday, January 15th at 7 p.m. in Westchester County, New York. Rick's book is released the day before. I don't know his exact schedule, but this will be one of the first, if not the first, events he does. Have you seen Rick's Twitter feed? Do you watch him on TV? Did you hear our podcast last year? Have you read his previous book, Everything Trump Touches Dies? If your answer is yes to any of these, then you know how fun, sharp, and engaging he is. Again, all the details are at chrisreback.com slash rickwilson. You know I'd love to see you there. Let me know you'll be there. Drop me a line at chris at chrisreback.com. Thanks, and now to the podcast. It started with the generals, Mattis, Kelly, McMaster. Along with Rex Tillerson, they were part of the so-called axis of adults, the ones, as the story of this presidency has been told, who stood between President Trump and chaos, between President Trump and his own unchecked impulses, particularly in foreign affairs. As we know now, only Trump is left standing, and he stands impeached because the U.S. House of Representatives found he couldn't withstand his unchecked impulses and withheld U.S. military aid and White House prestige from Ukraine unless our ally announced investigations into his political rival. How did we get here? What happened to the defense and security these generals, heads of defense, national security, chief of staff, and more, were supposed to provide? And, not for nothing, where are they and what are they saying now? Peter Bergen is here to tell us. His new book is Trump and His Generals, The Cost of Chaos. It's described as a news-breaking account of Donald Trump's collision with the American national security establishment and with the world. And it is. Bergen seems to have been inside the room for all of the details, the fights, debates, wins, losses. His goal? To reveal what happens when the unstoppable force of President Trump meets the immovable object of America's national security establishment. You know Peter Bergen. In 1997, he famously produced Osama bin Laden's first television interview, the one in which bin Laden declared war against the United States for the first time to a Western audience. Since then, Bergen's done just a couple of things to keep busy, like writing five other books, teaching at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government and Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies, and serving at CNN. Today, Bergen is a vice president at New America, a CNN national security analyst and professor and co-director of the Center on the Future of War at Arizona State University. I had the pleasure of interviewing Peter after one of his previous books, Manhunt, and I really enjoyed catching up with him again now. Before my conversation with Peter, though, I have an ask from me to you. I hope you like these conversations, and if so, I'd appreciate if you'd take a moment, go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, and if you're so moved, leave a five-star review. Several more of you did over the last weeks. Thank you. It makes a big difference. You know the parallel ask, though. If you don't like these conversations, well, thanks for still listening, but please just forget that whole rate and review thing. 
Okay, that's it. Here's my conversation with Peter Bergen. Peter, thanks for joining me. I appreciate your time. Thank you, Chris. So with a book like this, which so thoroughly explores the history and everything, just about everything, and I kind of mean that literally, I think, nearly everything about Trump's foreign policy leading up to today, perhaps it's best to start the conversation, though, in my mind, with the present. The Trump impeachment process is based on his handling of foreign affairs. Given what you learned and reported and heard, are you surprised that this is where we are? Is this the logical conclusion, and surely it's not the actual conclusion, uh, of the removal of the axis of adults? Yeah, I think the short answer is yes. I mean, it's a bit of a cliche to, to perhaps to, but there's a reason cliches are cliches, because usually they have large elements of truth. And mm. The access of adults, I mean, this was an impressive group of people that Trump had around him, H.R. McMaster, Jim Mattis, John Kelly, Rex Tillerson for all his uh, you know, failures as you know, defending his own department. I mean, these are some pretty yeah. uh, impressive people. And you know, over time, they've, they've, they've all gone. And, and um, you know, Trump is sort of unplugged and he's running the White House like he ran his real estate company, which is really kind of a one man show with a group of supporting uh, yes men and yes women and, um, you know, family members. Uh, and that's kind of the way he likes to manage things. And this was too late for my book, but John Kelly has said publicly that he advised Trump not to hire a yes person because he'd be impeached uh, if he had a yes person as chief of staff. And that's exactly what's happened. I mean, John Bolton uh, also pushed back against this July 25th phone call between Trump and Zelensky on, yes. on the theory that you know, Trump would use it to, uh, private grievances. Bolton now is also gone. So, you know, Trump hates being managed. Trump. I mean, the, I mean, Trump is the only elected official in the room. Uh, he gets the National Security Council and advisors that he wants, uh, and this is kind of clearly what he wants. But it comes, I think, with some price. And if you, if the team of rivals become a team of acolytes, mm. uh, you're going to kind of, you're not going to get the best advice. And I mean, you look at a, look at uh, Obama. I mean, he brought in Hillary Clinton. He brought in Bob Gates, who was, uh, you know, had served George W. Bush and was a Republican. Brought on Leon Panetta. I mean, he had a, a pretty impressive cast of characters who were kind of, you know, essentially people in their own right. They weren't just people who were dependent on their stature for uh, for to Trump. But I mean, if you look at that, Mark Esper is, you know, probably perfectly competent as Secretary of Defense. He's not Jim Mattis. Look at Robert O'Brien, who's now the National Security Advisor. He's probably, you know, probably you know, a not incompetent lawyer uh, who had some success as a hostage negotiator at the State Department, but he's certainly no HR McMaster or even John Bolton. Yeah. Uh, and look at, you know, so again and again, you've got, you know, CIA Director Gina Haspel is kind of a CIA lifer, and she's kind of keeping her head down, keeping out of politics. And so, or, or you know, it, it just it's, it's just a, a, a much less impressive group of people, and you can kind of, you know, listeners can make their own conclusions about how how Trump behaves with without people who kind of stand up to him and challenge him. I mean, I, one of the reasons all these guys have left for one reason or another is they took, you know, I just, I quote somebody in the book who says H.R. McMaster took a lot of face shots uh, for his kind of approach to the Afghan war. Afghanistan. I think that was about Afghanistan. Yeah. 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 Uh, and obviously Mattis, like, you know, it was Mattis resigned because of the abrupt announcement of abandoning our allies in Syria, the, yes. the largely Kurdish forces. 
But that was a long time coming. I mean, they started disagreeing about substantive policy issues starting in June of 2017. Yes. When Trump hardly endorsed the blockade of Qatar. Now, Mattis knew full well as the former head of Central Command that the most important military base outside the United States is the one in Qatar, which is where the war against ISIS and the Taliban is coordinated and is the forward base of Central Command. So, I mean, that was the beginning. Then there were other disputes about transgender troops, about treating our allies in kind of cavalier manner, NATO, Putin, you know, the list went on and on. I think over time, these these things begin to really accumulate. And I mean, H.R. McMaster, like, you know, I think sealed his fate when he was at the Munich Security Conference. Um, and it was, that was in Germany. Wasn't that in Germany that he said that? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was, uh, you know, they had a, uh, it was shortly after 12 Russian military intelligence officers were indicted by yeah. name for their involvement in interfering in the 2016 presidential election. And right. McMaster characterized this as indisputable proof that the Russians had interfered and immediately yeah. Trump tweeted against him publicly. Of course, un- unfortunately for HR, he failed to add that uh, the Russian interference had nothing to do with the outcome of the actual election. He uh, forgot that, according to Trump's tweet, which which you note, you know, what you just right. outlined, you just hit the two parallel tracks. You know, you, there are multiple tracks of, of your book, and, and just a, it's a it's a terrific read because of of all those tracks and, and a bunch of other reasons. But one is kind of a high level analysis, the Trump doctrine, foreign policy, you know, what is the approach? And then this parallel track that you just kind of were referring to of the individuals and H.R. McMaster yeah. and Tillerson and Mattis and Kelly and, and, and so many others. And I want to ask you about many, if not all of those people. But on the first one, you write, you aim to reveal what happens, and I'm quoting you here, when the, the unstoppable force of President Trump meets the immovable object of America's national security establishment, the State Department, the CIA, and above all, the Pentagon. And it, that was kind of your one of your stated goals in, in writing the book. And as we look at those, I mean, you know, you just noted many of them. The State Department, well, you know, we saw the Ukraine testimony and we saw how Tillerson, you know, didn't stand up for uh, his people. And that seems to be happening now with Pompeo. And we see how leadership lets diplomats hang in the wind. And the Pentagon, well, we saw the reaction to Trump's overturning, uh, you know, the Navy Gall- Navy SEAL Gallagher decisions and, uh, you know, other elements. And you just characterized the CIA. Those institutions, those those immovable institutions don't feel quite so immovable, do they? You know, one of the interesting things that I sort of took away from writing this book, I don't really address it directly in the book, is, you know, the Britain famously has an unwritten constitution and the United States has a written constitution. But I, I actually think the United States has a unwritten constitution that we weren't that aware of until Trump came along, which is part of the unwritten constitution is the president won't attack the FBI, won't attack the CIA, won't attack his own you know, National Security Council officials, you know, in a sense, won't attack the permanent civil service, which some people refer to as the deep state. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that, 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 and, you know, won't refer to the media as the enemy of the people and, and basically won't treat every institution uh, in, a, in, a, in a denigratory way. And that is what Trump has done. Now, you know, these institutions have survived in this case of the State Department for, you know, almost two and a half centuries. So it's not like I mean, presumably this too shall pass, but I mean, clearly there are some results in terms of people are not 
you know, volunteering to become state foreign services foreign service officers in quite the same way. Certainly, people I to- talked with at the agency say that allies are more careful about the information they share with the United States because they have no reason to believe that um, there isn't something between Putin and Trump that they don't quite understand and that they are more careful about what they share with us. Similarly, agency officials are more careful to share sources and methods with the White House, which is kind of extraordinary because they're concerned about people with improper security clearances uh, at the White House. Um, So now that balance against that, you know, we just had a national defense budget for $738 billion that was just passed. Compare that to the $600 billion budgets that typically would the case under Obama. So Trump has supported the Pentagon as an institution um, and um, whatever his kind of disputes with the various generals who have worked with him, uh, which over time have accumulated and now they're all gone. Um, but it, it, is a, it is an odd uh, moment in our national history when the president is at war with so many of the institutions that not only – work for him, but in which he's appointed the people running these institutions. I mean, well, just he, he, yes, totally. Yeah. And, and he supports the Pentagon through the budget, as you just described. But also at the end of your book, you make clear he's now his own general. So yeah, he's, he supports the, the Pentagon, but he kind of has put himself in charge of the Pentagon, hasn't he? Yeah. And I mean, that's his prerogative as commander in chief. I mean, the commander in chief has very broad ability to do whatever he wants. And we mm. saw with these pardons of convicted war criminals yeah. um, that he, you know, he's really exercising this ability. Uh, now, he, there's certainly no dispute he has the ability. Should he intervene uh, in the cases of some fairly low-ranking off, uh, 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 you know, servicemen um, and, and kind of overturn uh, what military justice has done, um, you know, uh, maybe that's not a good idea. Um, and uh, but he, he, you know, this is a guy who went to military-style boarding school, um, who had a romance with the generals, and now has got rid of them, and now is, you know, very much his own general. Uh, look at the decision uh, on Abu Bakr Baghdadi. Uh, I think a, a good decision by the president. It was, um, you know, he 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 made that decision. There was some risk involved. Uh, I don't think it was like the Osama bin Laden raid in terms of both risk and payoff to the American people. After all, Abu Bakr Baghdadi hadn't been responsible for the death of nearly 3,000 Americans on, on 9-11. No, but, but good, it was good, not yes. significant. No, not significant it was good. at it all. Was, yeah. And, and I, I, yeah, yeah, and he, he, yeah, he made the right decision, and, and, and uh, you know, he's the commander-in-chief. He's responsible for that decision. If things had gone wrong, he would have been critiqued. Uh, but things went right, and the operation went pretty flawlessly, and, and you know, he deserves credit for that. Um but I, you know, balance against that, I would say, as you look around the world right now, the Israeli-Palestinian peace deal that Jared Kushner was going to deliver is clearly dead, dead in the water. Yeah. Uh, the South, the North Koreans are, you know, testing missiles, talking about a Christmas present they're going to give Trump. I don't think that's going to be a nice Christmas present. <laughs> no. uh, the Iranians have started their nuclear production uh, enrichment, uh, not to high levels, but uh, to moderate levels. Uh, NATO, you know. NATO is, you know, kind of, you know, we we, we don't have a good relationship uh, with with many of those countries, yeah. and uh, and on and on Putin, you know, the Russians are, yeah. I'm sure, are going to try and interfere in in the 2020 election, yeah. um, to the extent they can. 
So you, you've used twice now, and it's the word that I have uh, in one of my questions for you as well, um, which is balance. And, and getting that balance and trying to understand the, the balance of the, the pros and the cons and the support for the institutions, yet the support for but, – but the, the pushback and, and the, the – the, trying to understand those balances I think is also a theme in your book. And, and one of the ones that I wanted to ask your – um, interpretation of is how you think about the balance of Trump's instincts versus his knowledge. Um, on the one hand, you don't strongly question his instincts. He, on, on page 128, you list the five questions he seems to ask about foreign involvement. Um, why do we care? Why does it matter to the American people? Why can't others do it? Who's paying for it? Why can't others pay? You had one on Afghanistan, another question of his. Why are we there 16 years later? You out, you identify how he's not dissimilar to Obama and that he wants to get us out of wars. Um, you note that he hasn't made the unforced errors of uh, George W. Bush and, you know, who got us into Iraq. You also note that he's gotten lucky, no crises yet. And, and his instinct, though maybe not his tactics, um, on China. And yet, you also yeah. note his apparent lack of history and knowledge. The most obvious story, of course, in your book um, that that notes this is you know seeing the the satellite image of the darkness of North Korea versus the lights of Seoul, and asking what ocean is that, or thinking that it, that North Korea is an ocean because it's so dark. And once it's all explained to him, asking, well, you know, can, why don't we let's just move Seoul. And when he's kind of told, well, you know, you can't just move the capital of South Korea, I guess, uh, you know, suggest moving the Americans who are there. Um, you, how do you yeah, – I guess I have two questions out of all of this. One is how do you reconcile and balance his instincts versus his knowledge? And then as a side question, because you seem to have been inside the room in every one of these conversations, can you tell me how briefers and staff reacted when they realized he wasn't joking about the uh, Seoul and North Korea question? Well, their reaction was just to do nothing because I think they've been you – know, I, I think that you know, you know, this Trump being Trump is this – you know, uh, you know, they just, they, they just, they didn't react to things that, yeah, I mean, obviously we can't tell 10 million people who live in Seoul and the yeah. 25 million people who live in the Seoul metropolitan area to move. So, I mean, it wasn't, but I mean, he clearly was being somewhat serious when he made these observations, but, you know, I, you know, I think you summarized very well kind of the case, uh, you know, the case for Trump, which is, you know, he hasn't made any major unforced errors like the Iraq war. He's kind of got lucky, and so he hasn't had to respond to a major crisis like Reagan did when the Soviets invaded Afghanistan, or Carter did when the Iranians took our embassy, or when 9-11 happened, or the global financial crisis that faced Obama. He hasn't had any of those. On the other hand, he hasn't made un major unforced errors. On China, I think he's probably actually had a good policy, which is that you know, the Chinese really are a peer competitor now that, you know, that policy was written by Jim Mattis in the defense strategy and, and H.R. McMaster in the national security strategy, but Trump signed off on it, on it. And we've taken a more aggressive posture with, with the Chinese, which I think is good because I think previously it was a lot of wishful thinking, which is if they liberalize their economy and they're going to become, you know, kind of, it's going to change them. But of course, it actually made it more repressive, as it turns out. The more, the richer they become, the more repressive they become because they have more tools to be repressive with. Yeah. Uh, so I think, you know, having this uh, un unenchanted view of the Chinese is, is a good thing. 
I would say, you know, as a, you know, climate change is an area which is really a national security challenge as the Pentagon has treated it as such for many, many years, years now. Yeah, it exactly. Affect, yeah, it will affect, you know, Norfolk, Virginia, a major U.S. naval base will be underwater at some point. Virginia Beach, where the seals are located, will be underwater at some point. So the Pentagon is planning for a world of climate change. And the interesting thing about Trump is, he, he he could have said, look, I don't believe in the science behind climate change, but I understand it's happening. But here's my infrastructure plan to you know, basically save Manhattan uh, and, and also uh, Palm Beach, where I, you know, two places that he lives. Um, he hasn't said that, and he, he just sort of buried his head in the sand about this issue. Um, so, you know, I mean, look, there's no... He, you know, I think there were more foreign policy successes. If you go back when he was surrounded by the generals, they had a very good plan to defeat ISIS. They inherited this plan from Obama. They really amped it up. They sped up the tempo of operations. They, uh, you know, did let competent commanders make decisions that previously were taken in the White House. And so that that was all a good thing. He did draw a red line on the use of Assad's use of chemical weapons in 2017 and again in 2018. Yeah, um, yeah I think a pretty good policy on the Afghan war in terms of, you know, announcing a longer term commitment and a small surge of troops. Um, but, you know, over time, as we get into 2019, I think there are fewer, fewer foreign policy successes. Um, and, you know, I think these two, two things are related. I think that he's getting you know, less competent advice. Um, and, um, you know, we've only got a year left of the presidency and he may or may not get a second term, I think. My guess is he might well get a second term if, if the election was held today. Um, and, um, you know, he's really kind of going with his gut. I mean, I one of the quotes I use right at the beginning of the book is he told the New York Times, you know, Babe Ruth never really explained how he could you know, be the world's greatest baseball player. He just, you know, he, it was all gut. It was all instinct. Mm. And what Trump meant by that is he's always worked on his gut, on his instinct. And, and that may work in a Manhattan real estate deal. I think one of his problems has been his consistent inconsistency. What is his policy on Syria? It was pulled out in December 2018. Then oh, we're going to leave some folks there. Then in early, you know, earlier, a few months ago, it was pulled out again. Then we're going to leave some folks there. You know, I think this is confusing to our allies and our enemies uh, because the both our allies and our enemies uh, want us to behave in ways that are consistent because that's what works in a Manhattan real estate deal where you posture back and forth is one thing, but when the stakes are much higher, I think that, you know, you get, you run the risk of, um, you know, people not understanding what your intentions are and then leading to some kind of escalation. Yeah. And, and I want to ask you about that uh, consistent inconsistency. First, can, can I ask you about some of the people? Because the other kind of track of your book is this amazing play by play of the individuals. Uh, just a couple of them. Rex Tillerson, you, you describe him as a deeply religious man. Um, when he was asked to become secretary yeah. of state, his wife said to him, I, according to you, see, God's not done with you yet because he uh, was planning to retire from Exxon. Later, um, he said, uh, himself that he thought he understood God's plan for him to get things done as Secretary of State, but over time realized instead that the plan was to stop bad things from happening. Do you have any sense of what Tillerson thinks God's plan for him is now? I mean, wh where is he? Does he think that God doesn't <laughs> want him to do anything more? It, it, it struck me, you know, wh why can Tillerson call Trump an effing moron in the tank in the Pentagon, but he really can't seem to say anything of consequence in public? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, God doesn't speak to me directly, so I don't know. <laughs> I, it's hard for me to understand how yeah. um, somebody who really believes that God is speaking to him directly um, thinks. Uh, but, you know, what what is uncontroversial is Rex Tillerson's obituary, if he hadn't met Trump, would have been he ran the world's largest and most successful corporation or and, and did, did so in a pretty good way. And now will be, he was... The first line will be, you know, he was arguably the worst secretary of state in the last, you know, nearly two and a half centuries of a, a U.S. State Department. Mm. Um, so, you know, but I mean, I mean, and again and again, people with sterling reputations go into the Trump administration and emerge, you know, tarred and feathered and battered uh, later. Um, and, you know, it's very few that kind of leave on their own terms. I guess Nikki Haley left on her own terms. Dina Powell, who was a deputy um uh, national security advisor left on our own terms, but in uh, you know, matters to some degree, kind of, yeah. Terms, yeah. Of. But you know, Trump, you know, also said, like, tweeted that you know he'd failed on the Afghan war, and Obama had fired him, yeah, and I mean, give him a like, second you know, chance on the way out. On on the way out of the exit, Trump really kind of denigrated him. So it's, it's an interesting question. Um, Tillerson yeah, hasn't really said much. Yeah, so, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, he, he has not said much publicly. No. Very, very little. Yeah, I came away. I mean, Tillerson was one of the most curious, one of the more curious uh, characters I in in the book. My, as I was, you know, reading your characterizations of him, um, it, it he really made me think, and and I actually came away even more confused about him um, than I was was going in. Um, a couple of other people. Um, McMaster, H.R. McMaster and Steve Bannon, would a one-on-one public debate between them provide for an extraordinary display of history and rhetoric? They both are, as you described, deeply well-read on on history and and extremely knowledgeable. Um, Or would it quickly devolve into a bloody UFC cage match battle? Um, and you describe McMaster's, uh, you know, fitness compared to uh, Bannon, who I think you say hasn't seen the inside of a gym in uh, I don't know how long. But what w- w- in a while? In a while? In a while? Let's leave it yeah, at that. You know, I thought Steve Bannon and HR were the smartest, most well-read wings of the White House. I mean, on the one hand, you had the America First wing led by Bannon, and on the other hand, you had the so-called globalists led by HR. And, you know, their, their disputes about the Afghan war uh, are some of the key moments in the book. I mean, they basically had completely opposite positions on this issue. There were some very, very contentious meetings in the White House where they, you know, really kind of um, came close to, you know, some real, uh, you know, it's the nearest uh, time that you might have had an altercation on a physical level in the White House uh, situation room for some period of time. Uh, that didn't happen, but it, but clearly there was, you know, they, they, they held each other in considerable mutual contempt. Uh, quote, you know, um, Bannon thought of uh, McMaster as a effing globalist and professor. Uh, yeah. McMaster wasn't really sure what <laughs> Bannon's agenda was. And um, and and so, yeah, the, the public debate between them, by the way, would be, you know, I think people would pay good money to see that because they're both in different ways uh, have uh, very clear views of the world and, and, and are very well informed. And um uh, you know, it, it uh, and, and, you know, uh, in a sense, the president is paying for this kind of dispute to happen uh, in, in it, you know, I mean, 
the president needs this kind of argumentation when he's making a decision so that they're really clear kind of, you know, the really clear options on the table. And I think there were really clear options on the table. Ultimately, when they met at Camp David to discuss the Afghan war, Steve Bannon was actually forced out of office that day. It wasn't at the meeting, but it came down to, shall we withdraw? Well, there were lots of costs to that, potentially Al-Qaeda and ISIS coming back in a major way in Afghanistan, the Taliban taking over the country. Shall we kind of express a long-term commitment and also a small surge of troops? That was the second option. And then the third option was essentially subcontract the war to the CIA uh, and or, you know, Eric Prince and Blackwater or what has become. And yeah. Eric Prince had a sort of contractor plan that would be under the CIA. And the CIA really didn't want to be part of that plan. And the Pentagon was opposed to that plan of having contractors running around Afghanistan leading military operations. And so by the time it came to Camp David, the, the decision had sort of already been made, which was where the president would announce a long-term commitment to Afghanistan and a small surge of troops. But but to get to that decision, there were these knockdown, drag-out fights in a situation between Steve Bannon and H.R. McMaster. And I think one of the reasons H.R. ultimately got forced out was he he represented the kind of national security establishment view about what to do in Afghanistan. He was the one who was taking, you know, taking all the hits, the face shots, uh, as I quote one official uh, for presenting this, and you know, Rex Tillerson was sort of hanging back, so it's just yeah, yeah. Rex, Rex stayed away from the, uh, you know, from the scatter shot and that, in your telling of it. Yeah, according to an, an official who was in these meetings, you know, Tillerson saw that like there wasn't really much of an upside to be taking face shots on this <laughs> issue because the president, the president didn't really want to do this. I mean, he and he, he hated being managed and he hates being managed and felt he's being managed on this issue. And he only, you know, he only kind of agreed after really doing the math, which is the only thing worse than staying in Afghanistan is just leaving. Yeah. And I think very, very uh, an argument that was persuasive to him and also played pretty strongly and uh, throughout, well, not more than an argument, an historical example was Obama's sort of haste to leave Iraq at the end of 2011. You know, why, how exactly that happened is a longer conversation, but the point is it did happen. And into that, you know, the Iraq army's, you know, kind of, didn't really have didn't have an American advisors. You know, could could the summer of 2014 have played out differently if we maintained some kind of persistent presence in Iraq? You know, maybe uh, you know in terms of fighting ISIS. But but you know that 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 was always in the background of these discussions was uh, what happened in Iraq after we pulled out in 2011. Could there be a replay of that in Afghanistan? And that was that was a pretty big cost uh, to, to consider. Yeah, and from your talent, you 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 walk us through that very clearly. Just to finish out on the people, and then I've I've got a, a closeout question to kind of um, get your your overall views. Mattis, Kelly, Tillerson, McMaster, um, you know there are others. Where are they now? Uh, you know, if there is such concern over the direction, I it was one of the key questions I had in in reading your book and thinking about this. I mean, okay, Mattis had his book and you, you characterize how he made some comments at the Council on Foreign Relations or at David Bradley's house. Tillerson has made a couple of random comments during interviews. You noted earlier, Kelly, you know, made his comment. But, you know, if these are patriots and these are individuals with strong views, and if the American condition um, is the foreign policy condition, let's say, is dire in terms of uh, institutions and being pushed back, if they think that it is, or you know, why the general silence? 
Well, that is a good question. I mean, I, I think in terms of the three-star and four-star generals, I mean, there is a very strong uh, ethic about not criticizing uh, a sitting president, not getting involved in politics. I mean, they, it, this, this really gets to the nature of a civil-military relationship, which is ultimately, if you're the Secretary of Defense, that is a political position. If you're the National Security Advisor, that is a political position. And that's was part of the tension between the generals and, and Trump. I mean, you know, Mattis refused to go on TV to defend Trump. He just basically wouldn't do it. Uh, and, and, you know, uh, because he didn't want to get involved in politics. But th- this is kind of a, a sort of tension that exists, which is ultimately if you serve in a cabinet for a president, it's a fundamentally political position. Now they're out of office, and Jim Mattis was very careful during his book tour not to criticize Trump directly, although he certainly took some pot shots at Obama and, and, and Joe Biden in his book. So his view is, if it's a sitting president, I'm not going to criticize him. I'm, that's, I'm sure, H.R. McMaster's view as well. Uh, John Kelly has said not much publicly. So on the, in the, on the military side, it's, there is a kind of reasonable uh, thing that they're trying to observe, which is we're not going to criticize a sitting president. Um, and also, maybe they don't think there's anything to criticize. I mean, I'm not a mind reader, so I don't know. Mm. Um, and then on Tillerson, he has said you know, publicly that um, he had to constantly tell Trump that he shouldn't do anything illegal. Uh, but that's really the extent of his criticism. So in Tillerson, Tillerson is much less encumbered by kind of the, the general uh, kind of view that the military shouldn't get involved in politics. Uh, so why he hasn't said anything? I mean, the other thing, of course, is they all serve for Trump, and it, they you know it's, it must be difficult to criticize him publicly when they, of course, were part of the administration. Uh, you can't yeah. discount that. So I, you know, I, it's a great question. Um, and, um, you know, but I, I they, there, there has been a fair amount of silence. Um, and that's just a fact. And to, to close out, at the beginning of the book, you ask what I think is the key question. How did a great nation bring itself to the point of such willful self-harm? Do you feel like you know the answer? Well, I mean, I I, I don't remember quite saying that, but I but I um, I think the elites have failed the United States. Uh, they failed them on nine eleven. They failed them with the Iraq War, and they failed them with the financial crisis. And our politics have not caught up with the fact that. Um, you know, Trump seemed to supply an answer to this, to these failures, to a lot of people whose, you know, who, who, whose sons or daughters may have served in Iraq, whose uh, livelihoods were severely damaged by the 2008 financial crisis, and who generally feel that the elites have, and that were both on the Republican and the Democratic side, haven't really worked uh, well. Uh, and I think that's a very legitimate criticism. And, um, you know, is Trump the solution to those criticisms? Uh in some people's mind, yes. Might there be another politician to come along who um, seems to answer these questions? You know, maybe. I mean, if you look at since 1992, the United States, Americans have not have only voted one establishment candidate in office, and that was George W. Bush. But otherwise, you know, Bill Clinton was kind of an outsider. Barack Obama was kind of an outsider. Trump clearly was an outsider. And so, you know, Americans are not looking for establishment candidates uh, when to solve the problems that they see, which is this, you know, vastly increasing inequality and um, and also, you know, uh, real wages not doing particularly well, given them how well the economy is doing. 
uh, and job insecurity and the like. And so, you know, if somebody can answer, Trump seemed to answer those questions for a lot of people. And if somebody uh, on the Democratic side is able to answer those questions, uh, he or she uh, may be able to beat Trump in 2020 or or or, or succeed him in 2024. Um, but so I, I you know, I, I, I Trump was elected by half the country, uh, and he wasn't just elected by, you know, uh, Hillary Clinton's basket of deplorables. He was elected by you know, a cross section of uh, Americans uh, from all sorts of backgrounds. And um, and I, as I was writing the book, I was always very conscious of the fact that that is the case. And I try to be fair to him. I mean, I you know, he he's a very unusual president. Um, yeah, and for the re- some of the reasons we've already discussed, uh, but I, but I, in, in, part of the book is an effort to be fair to what he got right and what he got wrong, and um, I, that that was part of my goal in the book. And it reads that way. It's a really excellent read that brings together an analysis of his overall approach and approach to foreign policy and America's place in the world combined with just really excellent play-by-play telling and bringing us inside the rooms and learning about the people. So thank you. Thank you for the conversation, Peter. Thank you very much, Chris. That was my conversation with Peter Bergen. My thanks to Peter for the conversation and you for listening. Quick reminders, live podcast event with Rick Wilson in New York on January 15th. Details at chrisreback.com slash rickwilson. And if you liked this conversation, please give it the five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. That's all for today. I'll talk with you soon.